0: come in get settled after the children have gone. Let's get into the next part of the book of Joshua, which is what we've been um, looking at over the last few weeks. But before we dive into that, um, have you noticed it's started to get a little bit colder, a little bit windier? It's that time of year. And this time of year for me, particularly the kind of the back end of October, the beginning of November, it always makes me reminds me to look back to some of the things in my childhood some of my kind of fondest memories and it's all based around in this time of year the fifth of november remember remember the fifth of november for gunpowder treason and plot i remember studying it at school primary school you had to go through the whole gunpowder plot thing and you learned the story from history but where i grew up in sussex in a little village there was the whole bonfire thing and fireworks thing was huge. It was massive all over Sussex, particularly in the village we lived in. And I remember when it came to bonfire night, it was a key part of our calendar as a village. There's a picture there. There is NBS is the Newark Bonfire Society. Newark was the village we lived in. And all the villages round about had bonfires at various times, and we had one in Newark and it was quite well known. And thousands of people came to it, and I remember it. I remember lots of things about it. I remember um, early in the morning, kind of five six o'clock, my dad would get up and go out onto the village green, where him and a bunch of other guys from the Scouts, I was one part of the Cubs and the Scouts, would roast a pig all day. I mean, a full pig, trotters, head, everything on a spear, open, open fire, all day. So when it got to the evening, they would sell it off, kind of fundraising thing um, for the cubs and the scouts, and they would do that. So I remember it getting up very early. I remember the pig being in the back of the car the night before, this whacking great thing sitting in the boot. And then I remember it being cooked, and you'd eat it in the evening. I remember dressing up, because they had dress-up parades, and you all got just dressed up in fancy dress, and we paraded around the village. And the best thing they did was they gave you flaming torches to children. No joke, they did. They're wooden sticks at the top. They're wrapped in this kind of, I don't know, clothy thing that had been dipped in paraffin or soaked in paraffin, and they lit them up, and we all got to carry them. And we we're wandering around the village with this thing, hundreds of us with these torches. It was great fun. I remember the fireworks themselves, which were a stunning spectacle, and they lit up the sky, uh, and it was amazing. They always had a set piece as part of the display on the green that would, would light up and it would be something topical, something maybe political, something amusing. It would have this image there that everyone would laugh at. I remember the bonfire. The bonfire was huge. Health and safety out the window back in those days. And this bonfire was probably as high as kind of this bit of stage in here. Massive thing. And they would light that and it would burn and it would be the heat would be intense. You couldn't get close. It was so big that when I, I remember the following morning doing my Sunday morning paper round on my bike... I would ride back through the village green and it would still be smoking. The fire was kind of still burning. There would still be people there who had been up all night just making sure it didn't torch the houses around the edge of the green. But that was there. I remember the flaming tar barrel that they had rolled down the road to the green. I wonder if they still do all this stuff because it was great fun. It's usually dangerous. Um, But I loved it and it was one of those kind of great memories I have. From my childhood and and on kind of what it's associated with, and what we're going to be looking at today is this whole idea of remember, remember. I've even titled the sermon "Remember, Remember," because we're going to look at from this next section of the book of Joshua how God taught His people to remember what He'd done, remember His graciousness, remember His mercy. Now we're in. Chapter 4 of the book of Joshua, the first five chapters of the book of Joshua are what, what we call the preparation stage. Because the people of God have come to the promised land. It's 500 plus years since the promise was given to Abraham that you will inherit this land and that your descendants will become a mighty nation. And finally, hundreds of years later, they're about to inherit those promises under this leader, Joshua. They had been under Moses, who's led them out of slavery in Egypt They've now got, Moses has died, Joshua is now the leader, and they're literally about to enter the land. And we've seen in the first chapter, God spoke through Joshua and basically said, You need to be strong and courageous. You need to to hold on to my word. You need to obey my word. You need to be an obedient people. You need to value my presence. You need to stay together, be unified. Then we saw in chapter two, how um, Joshua, as a smart leader, sent spies out into the land to wreck it and think if we're going to take this land, we need to know what's there. They went into the city of Jericho, which would be their first major obstacle, this great fortified city. What are we going to do with that? The spies go in and they meet a woman named Rahab. And what do they find out about this foreign woman who was a prostitute? It turns out she worships the Lord. She worships their God too. And she realizes that the, Lord of God, the God of Israel is the Lord of heaven and earth. He is the only true God. She's forsaken her people. She's forsaken her foreign gods, her false gods. She said, I'm going to worship you. And she helps She helps um, the the spies get away because they get found out. And they return to Joshua with this great report, actually, that that God is going to give us this land. And then in chapter 3, which we looked at last week, they come to the River Jordan, which is this great river in flood, this impenetrable barrier. They couldn't get across it to the other side where the promised land was. And we found out that God stopped the river completely in a huge miracle. And commentators tell us that's the most significant event in the whole book of Joshua, the stopping of the Jordan And that the the people of God can cross over. And it's so significant it actually takes two chapters. It's not just chapter 3 we've looked at last week. It's chapter 4 we're going to look at today. So I'm going to read chapter 4 to you, which again deals with this whole instance of the people crossing the Jordan into the promised land. And then we'll look at some application points. So if we can put it up on here, I'll read it to you. It says, When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people... From each tribe a man and command them saying take 12 stones from out the midst of the Jordan from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly and bring them over with you and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight Then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you, when your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord when it passed over the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan were cut off, so these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. And the people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded and took up twelve stones out of the midst of the Jordan, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, just as the Lord told Joshua. And they carried them over to the place where they lodged and laid them down there. And Joshua set up twelve stones in the midst of the Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood. And they are there to this day. For the priests bearing the Ark stood in the midst of the Jordan till everything was finished that the Lord had commanded Joshua to tell the people. According to all that Moses had commanded Joshua, the people passed over in haste. When all the people had finished passing over, the ark of the Lord and the priests passed over before the people. The sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh passed over armed before the people of Israel, as Moses had told them. About 40,000 ready for war passed over before the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho. On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him, just as they had stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. And the Lord said to Joshua, Command the priest bearing the ark of the testimony to come out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priest, Come up out of the Jordan. And when the priest bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord came up from the midst of the Jordan, and the soles of the priest's feet were lifted up on dry ground, the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. And the people came up out of the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those 12 stones which they took up out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in times to come, What do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know, Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over. So that all the peoples of the earth may know that your hand of the Lord is mighty and that you may fear the Lord your God. Forever. Alright, big idea this morning. We are to remember what God has done for us. We are to remember what God has done for us. So, chapter 4 celebrates the miracle of the people crossing the River Jordan. The same as chapter 3, just looking at a different perspective. And there are five parts of the chapter. If you want to flip the next one up, we'll look at each five um, of that. We've got command, obedience, unity, completion, and remembrance. And we'll go through each one. Now, First, one there was a command from God. God spoke um, to the people. And we've got this event, and he basically says, 12 guys, one from each of the tribe. There are 12 tribes of Israel, which were the 12 sons of Jacob, who they later changed his name to Israel. And he said, Right, one from each tribe, you come and you get a stone. We've got a pile of stones here. These are my, there are 12. There are 12 stones that they got out of the River Jordan. These aren't from the River Jordan. These are from my parents' garden, but they are still 12 stones that they piled out. And it says says they had to go and get these stones, and they had to grab one, and they had to put it on their shoulder. Now, thinking about it, their stones were probably bigger if they had to put it on their shoulder, but we don't know. So they got 12 stones, and they had to pick up these 12 stones out of the middle of the river as the people kind of were passing over. They were to go in the river, obviously from the riverbed, they were to... Pick them up um, and do that. And what the purpose of it was, it says there that it was now it was going to become a memorial. It was something that they were going to use to remember what had happened. Because what God was about to do or in the process of doing in terms of crossing the Jordan was this hugely significant event. And he wanted them to remember it. So he commands the men, go get a stone. So they had to oh, put the stone on their shoulder and they had to carry it up out of the Jordan. And presumably, these poor guys, then had to carry said stone all the way to Gilgal. I don't know how far it was, but it was clearly on the other side of the river. So they had to get their stone, they had to carry it, and they were going to set up a memorial which would then in turn remind them what had happened so they wouldn't forget. Because we know we're a forgetful people. We tend to remember things and then life bums in and we kind of... Things go out of mind. But God says, I'm not going to let you forget this. And I'm going to put something in place that will help you. It will remind you. It will become a permanent reminder to the people. And it says, it's going to become a permanent ride. It's something you're going to look at that actually your kids are going to ask you about. It says, when your children ask you, Daddy, why is there a great big pile of stones at Gilgal later on? You're going to be able to tell them the story of what happened. And it will testify to God's faithfulness. So he commands them very specifically. You need to go and get these stones. And the purpose of these stones is going to be a remembrance. It's going to be a memorial of what I've done as the Lord your God. And so what do the people do in response to that? It says, verses 8 to 10, they carried out the commands as per Joshua's instructions. This is the theme of the beginning of the book of Joshua. Where God speaks, the people obey. That's just kind of the way it goes. If you track it through these first few chapters, God commands, the people obey. And that's what they do. And interestingly, if you read this, actually, in verse 8, it says, at the beginning of verse 8, it says, the people of Israel did this, rather than just 12 guys. So there was an act of obedience on part of the whole, um, the whole people. They were obviously all behind what was going on. There was a kind of a faith. They are in the midst of this miracle, this river that had been in flood, and there's no way they could cross it. It suddenly stopped when the priests had entered the river and they were now standing in the middle of the riverbed of this fast-flowing, flooding river, holding the Ark of the Covenant, which we talked about last time, this sense of God's presence, the most holy object that Israel had, because it represented where God was, and it had stopped the river and they had kind of been obedient to what God had called them to. Now, if you read that section, verses 8, 9, 10, there's a little bit of ambiguity, and commentators disagree on this. And uh, there's two kind of sides to it. Because if you actually read it as it stands, it seems to imply there's two piles of stones. Is there one at the feet of the priests in the riverbed and then one later at Gilgal? Or is it a reference to the same pile of stones that they just put put at the feet of the priests and then later took them up and took them away? Basically, there's arguments both sides. No one completely agree and it's a little hard to actually say dogmatically which one it was. So either there is still a pile of stones in the middle of River Jordan that was covered by the water or there was only one pile that was moved. I'm fairly like, it doesn't matter, God parted a river. You know? And for the purpose of the people there was one in Gilgal that they got to look at, the other one was covered in water. So whether it was there or not doesn't particularly matter in the grand scheme of things. But the point is the people were obedient to God. They, God had spoken, God had commanded, go gather the stones, he pointed the men, one from each of the tribe, go pick up a stone, carry it to Gilgal, and set it up. And then it says the people, the unity, they passed over in haste. I imagine they passed over in haste because there was a little bit of, is, when's the water coming back? I wouldn't want to hang around in the riverbed. Just, just get across, especially, you know, you've got kids, get across, get on the other side. So they passed over in haste, they got to the other side. Then we get the reference to these... Um, Other tribes, you've got Reuben and you've got Gad and you've got the half-tribe of Manasseh. Now just to explain what this is about. So Jacob had 12 sons and two of them were Reuben and Gad. Then one of his sons, Joseph had two of his own sons, and they were called Ephraim and Manasseh. And if we remember the story of Joseph, when we studied that, uh, Joseph went down into Egypt, tenacolor dream coat, dreams, etc. Pharaoh became the prime minister of Egypt, blah, blah, blah. But then he was re- reunited with his family at the end of um, the book of Genesis. And in the meantime, while he'd been down in Egypt, he got married and had, had two kids, Ephraim and Manasseh. And what we find out, as we, talk, as we read through the rest of the Old Testament, poor Joseph doesn't actually get a tribe. But his two sons do, and they're referred to as the half-tribes because they're basically from Joseph, but you've got two halves, Ephraim and Manasseh. So when you find Ephraim and Manasseh coming up, they're not actually the sons of Jacob. They're his grandsons through Joseph. That's where we get the two half-tribes from. And what you find in Numbers, just before this we get into the book of Joshua, there were two kings on the other side of the Jordan River called Shion and Og who were enemies of God, enemy of God's people, and they tried to attack God's people, and God's people just annihilated them in battle by the grace of God and they they took over the land they had there and the people from Gad and uh, Reuben and Manasseh liked the look of the land and said can we settle here and God said to them yes you can settle here however you mustn't forget that you are part of my people and when they go in to take the promised land that I promised to them that inheritance you must go with them, you must support them it's not a case of just, well, off you go, I'm not, I'm not interested. We're one people under one God, which means you must send your fighting men to go with their brothers to fight to take the land. So when we read about it here, what's basically happening is the, let's do the mass, what is it, nine and a half tribes go across, all of them. Two and a half kind of non-combatants stay behind, but the fighting men go with their brothers, and it says there are what, 40,000 of them? And so what we see here is another act of obedience on the part of Reuben and Gad and Manasseh. We're going to go and fight with our brothers. It's also a display of unity. We are one people. We represent one people because also the 12 guys who picked the stones, they're from all the tribes. They all picked up the stone. They all went. They all took. So they represented the unity of God's people. And what we find at the end of that, we find a foreshadowing. that mentions Jericho. That's going to come. We're going to find out about in chapter 6. Matthew's going to deal with that in a couple of weeks' time, what's going to happen there. We also find a fulfillment of what God had said to Joshua way back in chapter 3, when he said, actually, I'm going to exalt you amongst the people. Just like I exalted Moses, just like he was my chosen leader, and the people were in awe of them, I'm going to do the same for you. And so what we get is... The people are stunned at Joshua's leadership and they're in awe of God and his chosen man. And actually they've crossed the Jordan together as one people. And it said they stood in awe of him as it stood in awe of Moses. As this man who hears God and kind of incredible things happen. So we've got the unity of God's people. The next bit we've got is the completion where basically we have the, the, fi- the ending of the miracle. I don't know how long it took. We don't know. How long it takes to gather maybe upwards of a million people and cross a river? Maybe all day, I don't, I don't know. But the priests, I imagine the priests got tired. Can you? Standing in the river, holding the ark, while people are passing by, kind of, and the soldiers are passing by. And then it says, as we finish, it says, so he's, he commanded the priests, you can, come out the, you can come out the Jordan now. And they're probably thinking, good, my legs are getting tired and they come out the jordan it says what um, and the souls of the priests were lifted on dry ground so that moment they stepped out of the river bed if you will onto the bank must have been the waters came <laughs> rushing back into the place the kind of the miracle of god had sort of it was completed it stopped the jordan allowed them to cross and then the river Flowed back where it said, and it overflowed all the banks as before. So it came back with a vengeance, just like before. We found out the river was in flood, so it wasn't just in its normal place. It had burst its banks. There would have been water everywhere, dangerous to cross um, for the people. But God had done it. He had taken all the people through um, the Jordan. And in that final part, we have the remembrance when they actually tr- they set up the memorial to remember what's happened. And it's interesting that they, when the Bible puts in extra details, they're for a reason. And it says in verse 19, what does it say? It says, the people came up out of the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month. Why on earth would you give us that piece of information? Well, that, that day is significant, That's hugely significant to the people of God. And if you've been reading kind of your Old Testament through, it would be significant. You'd think, ah, that date sounds familiar. What was that date? Well, that was the date that they took the Passover lamb. They chose the lamb who was going to be sacrificed for the Passover. That was the day. It was when it was first done way back in the book of Exodus. On the 10th day of the first month, you select the lamb. And the lamb was then brought into the house So it could be examined by everyone to make sure it was it was spotless. And then a few days later the lamb was then killed, cooked, and eaten. So we've got this significance actually. The day they came out is the first day, is the first kind of day of the process. Four days later, the fourteenth was the lamb was killed and they're eaten. So we've got this place at Gilgal. They've arrived, they set up a memorial of the stones for what's happened but at the same time they're selecting the Passover lamb and the Passover was the kind of hugely significant religious festival in the lives of the Jewish people. It was the one that marked their freedom from slavery in Egypt it was the end, the 10th the, the plague. God, God sent through Moses the plagues on Pharaoh and Egypt because Pharaoh hardened his heart. He wouldn't let the people go. He disobeyed God. He said, no, I'm not going to do it. And the, progressively the plagues get worse and worse. And there was that final one, death of firstborn, unless they'd killed the lamb and put the blood on the lintel. And God warned his people that was going to happen. He said, so if I see that, I will pass over. And I will not visit your house like that. And then through that, there was freedom. There was freedom for the people of God. So we've got the people of God have suddenly passed through the Jordan. They've come to this place, Gilgal. They've set up a point of remembrance. But the Passover is just about to happen. And this is really interesting timing when you think about God's timing in this. Because if I was a commander of an army and a people, and you just crossed over the Jordan, and suddenly Jericho is in front of you, which is your enemy, the last thing I want to do is sit around and waste time with some festival I want to go and start pick a fight because you're suddenly on the plains you might even be vulnerable from counterattack from the enemy but actually what's happening God's timing this is not a waste they're putting first things first let's remember God let's remember what he's done for us let's remember how he's led us out of Egypt he's always led us through the Red Sea as a people He's already saved us once. He's now brought us into the promised land and we're now physically camped in it, this land that he's promised us. And the first thing they're going to do is put their focus on him and remember what he's done. And they're going to celebrate the Passover. So this was also significant for the people because this would have been their first Passover in the promised land recognizing that God had honored his promises and he had led them from slavery in Egypt and before that the promise to Jacob and Isaac and Abraham and suddenly they were now living it out in the promised land and so the Passover was coming. And so we have the stones, they were set up in Gilgal as a raid uh, to remember and Joshua explicitly links that to the, part, the crossing of the Red Sea that brought them out of slavery, so this is the same kind of thing, I've brought you out of slavery, I'm now bringing you into your inheritance, you need to remember it, you need to remember what God has done, and it was a sign to show the power of God and what he was able to do, it was cause um, the enemies of God to fear Israel, because if they've got a God who can do that, they're, you know, they're scary bunch of people who are coming into that, and what we've got effectively is that the fear of God goes out through Israel, and Israel effectively have won the battle for the promised land and they haven't even had a fight yet. Because we saw from Rahab what's happened? People are melting away in fear already. God has now parted the season, the people have arrived, and actually, God is, God is fulfilling his promises to these people and they haven't actually done anything yet. They haven't actually gone out and had to fight for anything. And this is hugely significant for us because we've got. Um, we've got a, a stones of remembrance and we've got the Passover and for us as New Testament believers what does the Passover mean to us? Who is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Jesus Jesus, so we've got, this, we've got this imagery coming at you. They're told to remember. They've got the stones to remember what's happened. They've got this Passover lamb that they're about to sacrifice. And we find out in chapter 5 they're going to celebrate that Passover. So we'll look at that next week. And they've got this, all this foreshadowing pointing forward to one day a Savior who would come and make a way from them. And he would make a way through the Jordan we looked at last time into the eternal promised land. That is inheritance for all believers. And it's Jesus. And we know that Jesus... Um, died on a cross as our Passover lamb, then rose from death victorious. And that's why we don't need to celebrate the Passover anymore because actually we have Christ who is our Passover lamb and he's the one who saved us and we have all that. And actually as the people of God, we're called to remember. We're called to remember. And as New Testament believers, we're called to have our stones of remembrance and remember our Passover lamb. But what's the way that we've been called to remember? The clue's on the stage, by the way. the bread and the wine we too have been called to remember because what happened on the final Passover where Jesus celebrated it with his disciples just before his death he took the bread and he said this is my body broken for you and he took the cup and he said this is my blood of the new covenant the new arrangement between man and God said for you and then he said what Do this in remembrance of me. And as New Testament believers, we're called to remember. We're called to remember our crossing of the Jordan. We're called to remember our Passover lamb as what happened when we became believers, when we chose to follow Jesus, when we repented of our sins, when we put our faith and trust in him. We're told to remember the most significant event in hi- history of the world, which was the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as a church, we've been called to remember it, and we've been called to share bread and wine with us. The Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians, and he describes it like this: He says, "For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread." about the bread and the wine that we need to remember and then we're going to share it together um, as a church, as a body. First one is, it's an act of obedience. God doesn't give divine suggestions. He gives divine commands because He is God and He is the creator of heaven and earth and He can do that. And so He gives us a command. He says, do this in remembrance of me. So, it's something that we are charged with. It's something we have the responsibility as God's people to keep doing in remembrance of God. When God spoke to Joshua all the way through this theme of obedience, commands and obedience, he didn't give, he said, Well, I've got a good idea, Joshua. What do you think? No, he was very clear. You do this. Be strong and courageous. Tell the priest, go into the water, pick up the stones, pile them up at Gilgal so everyone will remember what's happened. We're to do the same as the church. We're to do this in remembrance of him. Now for us as a church, the way we do it is mainly through our life groups, which you, we talked about this morning already, and that's what we do, because our life groups every week um, when they meet together, they do three things. They eat together, they talk together, and they pray together, and it's a simple meal and there's kind of 10 to 12 adults depending on the size of the group and who's there that week share a simple meal together talk about something meaningful which is our relationship with Jesus and we pray together and as part of that meeting we say to our life groups we want you to share bread and wine why do we do it there well, when we started the church we felt that reflected most on what Jesus did with his disciples that meal gathering and it was part of that so we wanted to reflect that so that's why we said we'd love you to do it there you don't have to do it every time you meet but more often than not would be great. I'd be happy if you did it every time. That after the meal or during the meal or even at the time of the end when you pray, you get out the bread, you get out the wine and you share and you remember what God has done. And so we're to do this as the church and we're to encourage you. And if you haven't done that in your life group for a while, maybe this week is the week to do it, to get back on track. Encourage your life, groupers. say, hey, I'll bring the bread and wine. Can we share bread and wine together? Encourage one another because we're to do this in remembrance him. It's a command from God, and we're doing something a little different because we're doing it here on Sunday with all of us together um, this morning. The second thing is it's a sign of unity. It's a sign of unity. It's for all believers. There's one bread and one wine. That's it. There isn't a hierarchy, there isn't better wine for those with the frequent flyer miles who've been Christians longer. There isn't better bread or a a better table for those to come to who've been Christians walking with Jesus or had a good week this week. It doesn't matter whether you've been a believer 60 years or 60 seconds, you get to come and share. You get to come and partake in it. Everyone is equal before God. No one is better, there's no hierarchy, there's nothing we can bring to God to say I am worth more than the person sitting either side of me. I am better than them. The only thing we contribute to our relationship with God is our sin, which needs to be forgiven. And we all sit in that boat. I heard someone say the, foot, uh, the ground at the foot of the cross is level. There's no, you get to stand higher than I, I get to stand higher than We don't get to look at them, we're all saved by faith. We all get to trust in Jesus. And so when it comes to the bread and wine, we all share it together. And it's a sign of unity. So if you're here and you're a believer in Jesus and you're not a member of this church, you go to another church somewhere else, doesn't matter. Come and join us because there's only ultimately one church. And Jesus is the head of it. And we have lots of expressions in different bodies and different groups all over the world. Great. But we all share in one bread and one body and we all come together. So if you're, not, um, if you're a believer from our church, come and join us. We want to be part of you. However, if you're not a believer here, we ask you not to get involved. The reason is simply this. Um, I find this helpful. This is my wedding ring here. Okay? And to everybody else in this room bar me, it's just a piece of metal. If you found it, On the floor, you might get a little bit of money for it if you took it to a a jeweler or or someone like that. But ultimately, it's it's insignificant. To me, this represents 17 and a half years of marriage. It represents the love of my life. It represents the family and the children we have. It represents massive amounts of me. It's hugely significant. And so, whether you're a believer or you're an unbeliever... That's the difference when it comes to the bread of wine. If you're not a believer, you're not a follower of Jesus, it's literally just bread. And you might not like it, you might like it. It's just wine or non-alcoholic options we have here. If you're a believer, it represents everything. It represents a Savior who died for you. It represents a transformed life. It represents new life to come. It is huge. And so that's why we ask, if you're not a believer here, there's no shame, just... Sit where you are and others will come and get the bread and the wine. Last one, it is a way to remember. Jesus' death and subsequent resurrection is the key to the Christian faith. It is the linchpin, it is the center. Nothing else can replace it in what we believe. And this is our way of remembering. Jesus Christ is God the Son. Eternal since before the foundation of the world. He was born of the Virgin. He grew up as a human, both fully God and fully man at the same time. He lived a sinless life, a perfect life. Not just sinless, but honoring God in every possible way that he did. Holy and righteous, following his Father. He then died in our place for our sins on the cross in the most horrific death ever devised the death we should have died and he was sinless and perfect he was betrayed by his friends he was abandoned turned on by the authorities he was even banned by his father in heaven as he bore our sin he then rose victorious from the grave new resurrection life and commissioned his followers to go and tell everyone the good news that they can have new life in him And what we're doing by taking this bread and wine is we are remembering the impact that event had on our lives. How that event, 2,000 years ago, has eternity spanning consequences. And when we take bread and when we take wine, we realize that that event, when the Lord of glory died and rose of dead, impacts me now. And I remember it, and I am thankful, and I am praiseworthy. I I, I give praise to God and say, God, you are amazing because you saved me. You forgave me of my sins. You turned my life around. I am now holy and righteous in you. I am a saint, the Bible says. All those things is how we remember, and we share the bread and the wine to do it. And even says at the end there, we're not only to remember ourselves, we're, we're, we're meant to tell people. Who specifically are we meant to tell? What does it say in the passage? You'll tell your children. And so uh, w- I, having read this, I spoke to my wife and I said, we need to sit down with our boys and tell them what this means. They're not in here now. But actually, if you're a parent here, there is a responsibility to actually just communicate why we do what we do. And if th- we ask them often at ch- you know, on the way home, what did you do in children's work today? They often forget, <laughs> even though it's been like half an hour. Thankfully, being married to one of the kids' workers... She knows what we've done, so we can ask leading questions. But We talked to them about what they've done, but this time, we're actually, we're going to talk to them about what we've done. And actually, just, this is what we do, this is why we do it, this is what it means, just so you know. If you've got kids here, why don't you tell them what this is happening, what we did in our meeting today. So we're going to share bread and wine together as a people today, and we're going to celebrate all the amazing things God has done for us. So do you want to just stand And come back up. There's so a couple of things we need to do before we sort of get into this. The Bible is, is clear. and says when you come to share this, you need to take a moment to make sure you're right with God. Just actually make sure that there's nothing in your life that needs to get sorted out. So I'm just going to lead us through that. So maybe you want to close your eyes. If you know there's some things in your life, even this morning, you know, things have happened, those moments where you lost your rag or you've done something or thought something, just take a moment now and get it right with God. Just confess your sins. But 1 John 1 8 and 9 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just, will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And you'll know what they are because the Holy Spirit will be highlighting them to you now. They're in you. Just take a moment, confess them, say you're sorry, repent, turn around, and let God's forgiveness come. The Bible also says that actually part of that coming to share is actually if you've got an issue with an individual, you might need, you need to sort that out. So if you know there's someone, get a bit awkward now, but this is church. You know there's someone in, maybe in church, particularly if you're here, who you know you just need to just get some stuff straight. Spouses, you know, that's always a good place to start. Friends, you know, just get it straight. Just deal with it now. Talk to them. Repent. Da, da, da. If you know that maybe it's somewhere outside, you might need to make a note. Go and deal with them later. But just let's seek to kind of reconcile where we can. God reconciled us to him. And our responsibility is to be reconciled as much as it depends on us to others by the grace of God. So that's what we're going to do. What we're going to do in a moment is we're going to sing a song. When we've sung the song, we've got a couple of guys who are going to come down here and we're going to get the bread and wine and stuff ready. Way we're going to do it is this. On this side, we're going to have bread, and we're going to have a non-alcoholic option. If you prefer that, I do. But there you go, there's that one. On this side, we'll have the alcoholic option, bread as that. We've also got over here some. Gluten-free, wheat-free bread as well, which is still sealed there. So if you want to take that, that's there. You can come and get that, and you're free to come and take it. So we're going to sing the song and do that. And at the end, me, Phil, or someone will say you can start coming forward, and you can come and get them, and then go back to your seats. If you want to pray with someone, do that, and then we'll just carry on worshiping and see what God's going to do. Does that all make sense? Excellent. Let me just pray. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you for what you did. Thank you for your death, your resurrection. Thank you that you've revealed it to us. Thank you for giving us a way to remember what you've done. Lord, we want to say we love you and praise you. We celebrate you today. And as we take bread and wine, we remember your death and we proclaim it again and again until you return. And one day we will share it with you in the new kingdom. And we look forward to that day. But on this day, we celebrate with your people And we say, thank you, Lord. We love you and we praise you. And God's people said, amen.